This is episode 722 on the Hidden White Podcast with my guest, Fergus Connolly. Enjoy the show. G'day everyone, welcome to the Hidden White Podcast. Just a brief introduction today. My guest today is Fergus Connolly. He's written a couple of books. One is Game Changer and the other one, which is his newest, is 59 Lessons. Both books sort of look into uh, the sports science and how we can prepare to win, how we can really improve and enhance our overall performance. He's spent a lot of years coaching and working with uh, athletes and he's also spent time working in organizations as well as with special forces etc. He's got a lot of experience and a lot to share. In this episode we really look at how we can constantly improve ourselves, how we can do better and I think his research and his experience in both the practical sense and the theoretical sense can be applied across disciplines. So what we really talk about is is how we can improve our individual performance and how that applies to the collective as well. So it's a really cool chat. It all starts with uh, values, identifying our values, aligning ourselves with our values, and really maintaining the behaviors um, that are going to progress us to that next level and continually progress us as well. There's a lot more to the conversation, guys. I hope you enjoy it. It's a really cool one. Check it out at thehiddenwire.com, episode 722. You can pick up his books there, plus the books that he recommends for us to check out as well. You can also connect with Fergus on his website. Guys, great episode. Hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think. Jump on to thehiddenwire.com, leave your comments in the show notes, or connect and interact with me at Facebook, The Hidden Wire. Thanks, guys. Talk soon. G'day, Fergus, and welcome to The Hidden Wire Podcast. How are you today? Doing greatly. Thank you for having me. Yeah, mate. Pleasure to have you. Looking forward to our conversation today, as always, uh, bringing remarkable guests on here that have a lot of experience in particular fields that can, I certainly believe, um, regardless of where their field lies, can be of value to us in our individual lives, people that are listening out there, myself included, um, to help us thrive in whatever we pursue in life. And, And ultimately, for me, it's all about really alleviating the suffering that we might be having and, and trying to create more abundance and, and happiness. Um, so that's what I'm all about and that's why I've reached out to you. You've got a couple of books out there. So you've got um, Game Changer, The Art of Sports Science and also your newest book, 59 Lessons, um, working with the world's greatest coaches, athletes and um, special forces as well. So congratulations on your work, mate. And first question is, um, to just ask you to give us a bit of a background in how you got into um, writing these books and into this field of work. Um, I guess I, I wanted to share my experience. My background is, I guess, a little bit different from from most. I've been fortunate to work uh, all around the world and in Australia included, uh, the UK, Ireland, of course, uh, and the US. And, you know, when you move job as I have, you know, from different sports, um, you know, people sometimes think, well, it, each sport is very different, but I started to notice more and more similarities, hmm. um, you know, coaches, teams, military, and you start to recognize the same themes in performance. And that's really what I, I wanted to share. So Game Changer is probably the only book that presents, you know, performance models for all sports. And 59 Lessons is a collection of stories and lessons from all the different sports and military that I've been fortunate to learn, you know, learn from and work with. And it's about sharing those common themes. Um, and back to your point, um, very often about being efficient, 
and finding contentment or happiness and really encouraging people to look outside of their own field and recognize the similarities. We tend to identify differences first rather than similarities. And um, so that's what, that's what I really wanted to do with both books. Hmm. Yeah, cool. And are you, were you a sports person yourself um, starting out or is this just, um, you've just been a passionate sporty um, that got you into this field? How did you sort of enter? I was a bad sports person. <laughs> my, 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 my family um, moved back from the US to Ireland um, shortly before I was born. We moved, um, uh, you know, a house um, at an age where I didn't really get to play or start playing team sport, Gaelic football, um, early enough. And I started playing around 15 or 16, which is late. Um, you know, I'd been doing other things, music and drama and everything, but I, you know, just like, just like footy in Australia, um, you know, it's, it's everywhere. So I started late and from that, you know, from that moment, I was always trying to learn and learn from others and try and get better. Hmm. And, um, you know, I, I played football, I played at a reasonably high level, but, um, I was just always interested in how do you get better and how do you get better as an individual and then within a team? And I think, I think it's pretty common that those of us who are not the most gifted initially, um, you know, have that hunger and thirst for knowledge to improve. And I think that's why, I think that's why many of the, the great coaches, even in Australia, you know, across every code, um, may not have had the most illustrious career. I think it's, it's very common. Yeah, yeah, okay. So really that curiosity with what makes um, high performers perform so well and win at what they do. I was actually listening yes. to something this morning that was talking about um, you know, people that study the science of sports and performance um, in sports um, seems a lot more readily available out there, that, that research anyway at least, compared to some of the other industries and perhaps like politics or whatever it might be. Um, whilst, you know, no matter what you pursue in life, everyone's trying to always do their best and get better and improve and become high performers because that's what sort of establishes us as successful people in that field of work. Yet it seems like sports is, and I don't, I don't mean to sound arrogant, but it seems like sports is an easier place to really do that research because it's more um, restricted to influ- our external influences, I suppose. Is that something that you could sort of um, elaborate on or agree with? Yeah, no, it, no, it's it's a very good point. I think there's a, a, a huge amount of research out there, and I think there's a lot of research that we draw on from you know from physiology, from biology, from psychology, you know, for the for a holistic approach. However, one thing that I think we're starting to find now is that there's an abundance of research that can actually be confusing. So I think it's almost reached a critical or a tipping point where um, there's so much research out there, it's almost so difficult to stay up to date. And I think other areas will notice that as there, um, you know, as research starts to grow in their area, where's that critical point? And what you are seeing more and more now is um, uh, a divergence between practice and theory, between academia and the real world. So um, when I started in the industry, I came in at the beginning of the uh, explosion in sports science and research. And I came in at a 
really at a, in a perfect storm. And I was straddling both spheres. I was studying the research, working in practice. Um, and it's become more and more difficult to stay up to date with research because there's just so many papers published every single day. Mm. And how do you to date with it so um you're right there's so much research in in sport but at what point does it become you know too much and the other challenge you face is at what point is it too theoretical and is the gap between theory and practice um too great to apply it and that is common in in manufacturing as well, actually, um, which was my, one of my original areas of study. So um, you're absolutely right, but it does create then its own, uh, you know, its own challenges. Yes, I suppose I've got a, a couple of questions just from that, um, and really that that balance between theory and practice. Um, it sort of becomes a case of information overload. It sounds like where we've got so much theory and information out there that we can absorb on it and suck in and it creates this, I don't know, this this false ideal of um, becoming perf- perfect in what we do. Um, mm-hmm. And that then limits us to actually taking the action. And I know in my experience, certainly in my field of work, um, it's only by taking action that I really improve and, and grow. And whilst I can become victim to sitting behind a computer or books or whatever and reading information, trying to learn, 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 um, it doesn't take me anywhere. Whereas as soon as I just learn something and take it out there and put it into practice, that's when I notice the improvement. So yeah, again, I like that point of of finding the balance. Um, yes, yeah, and that's a, that's a very very important point that I think um, I re- I really um, believe the apprenticeship model is the optimal approach to the development of of. Um, professions, but I would regard them as vocations that work with people. So, for example, nursing, um, coaching, teaching. To me, they're a vocation as opposed to a profession, like a perhaps accounting or manufacturing. And the apprenticeship model, where you're going back and forth between theory and practice, taking small snippets of theory or academic research, mm. applying, failing and refining them to your environment. And I think that's the optimal approach to human development or to personal development. Yeah, actually, and it's probably a good approach for for all fields of work. Really, you know, you look at accounting or, or anything that requires a long period of study. If you could have practical um, takeouts within that period, um, you're going to yes. be better at the end. Because I know when I did, I studied at university, and um, you know, it was all theory. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the, <laughs> I don't know anything that I learned. You know, um, twenty years on. Um, and at the time, even when I finished, you know, it was just irrelevant because I didn't really have the, the practical experience. So that's, um, yeah, it's a really good point. The apprenticeship model is probably a, a good way to go. Um, I had another question there uh, that's just slipped my mind in regards to all that. Um, well, just, so what, one other point I think that, um, or it's a kind of state of mind that, that we, you know, you go to university for three to four years or longer and there's an assumption, a subconscious assumption that, well, I've studied and learned, so now I'm going to work. When what you, you're really speaking about is a, you know, a continuous learning model, because we never, ever know it all. Um, but, the, you know, but there's a, like an inbuilt assumption that we study for this block, then we go and work um, just by the nature of our educational system. That's where, again, the apprenticeship approach, I think, 
um, you know, encourages this continuous learning, continuous development. Yeah, I know the uh, the Japanese folks seem very good at um, continually improving their art um, in whatever that yes. is. Um, yeah, but, uh, and I would say actually, I, I would say in my experience, um, Australia as a nation, I, I believe, are better at it than than uh, than many other countries. I think that there's, I think there is, um, you know, a, a humility um, that encourages Australians just by their nature to continue to learn. That's just a, an observation, an observation. Mm, yeah. Okay. There you go. Feather in the cap. Um, <laughs> going back to the, the information overload or too much theory. And I guess the, the science I've, I've uh, interviewed a couple of people recently, um, one in regards to the neuroscience now behind sports and high performing athletes and, and what we can gain in value from understanding the science of the brain and how that, um, influences performance and sometimes i think and again this goes across disciplines is that we make things too complicated sometimes and it perhaps doesn't need to be so complicated and yes we have always seen a continual improvement and i'm sure you could you know tell me stories about this and the science behind it in the sports arena we've always seen continual improvements like the what someone could <laughs> swim um you know 1500 meters 20 years ago to what they can do today is, is incredibly different. And then compared that to a hundred years ago is amazing. Um, so there seems to be this constant improvement and that can only come from understanding, um, how we can increase performance better. But again, where does it become that balance between how much is too much information and where is that complexity, um, rather than simplicity behind a model. And I know in my career, again, in real estate, um, you know, by keeping things simple, allows me to perform at a higher level. When I start to complicate things by listening to everyone's theories and ideas and trying to adapt it into my system, it just becomes uh, a, a cluster of um, inefficiencies and, and actually decreases the performance, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, my good friend, David Epstein, who wrote uh, The Sports Gene, has a new book coming out which speaks to the, the power of generalists and their ability to draw on multiple areas um, to come up with, um, you know, general solutions or holistic solutions. And um, I think that the explosion in research um, has meant a greater focus on specialization in certain areas. And this is this theory practice gap that I speak about where um, people take this conclusion in a specialized area and then try and uh, apply it to a general problem or to a holistic problem and then wonder why it doesn't work mm -hmm. or they look for and search for the, the improvement in that specialized area. And, you know, one simple example is in, uh, you know, team sport or in where, you know, the explosion in sports science and research was primarily or initially focused on physical improvement and that reached a plateau but many people just kept pushing, let's get them fitter, faster. But it wasn't resulting in wins. Right. Um, now, at that point, things tend to go one of two ways. You keep flogging that dead horse or you take a step back and go, okay, you know, let's look at the bigger picture and ask the very simple question, does it affect the scoreboard? And that's why many of the more experienced, uh, I'll use the term more mature rather than older coaches, um, can be very, very successful because they see the bigger picture um, quicker, I think, than some of the younger coaches in, in some sports, not in all sports. 
Yeah, I love that. Uh, does it affect the scoreboard? I think that's a great way, no matter what you do, to just step back yes. and say, hey, is what I'm doing or will this affect you know the scoreboard in, in what I'm pursuing? Um, yes. And yeah. if, it's, if it's not or if you think it won't, then perhaps you, you know, it's just a wasted pursuit. Yes, I, like I mean, I noticed that first when I was when I started coaching, coming from the sports science, you know, background and initially or studying all the research and and you know finding these wonderful conclusions. But then I would go and coach, and I would see other coaches who perhaps didn't have you know the scientific reading done, but were getting better results. And I was forced to ask the question: Why are they doing better than I am, even though I? based on my perception, no more than them. Well, I, I might have, but in only in certain very specific areas. Yeah. And I had neglect, neglected this art of coaching. And that's why, you know, I wrote Game Changers, the art of sports science. You know, how do you how do you apply it in the real world? And again, how do you affect the scoreboard? Mm, great. So with, with all your research in this area and your experience as well, um, working with high performance and across disciplines now, um, can the can the information that you've learnt, the lessons that you've learnt, be applied across disciplines? Like, yeah, that's the question. Ab- yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, what you start to what you start to notice are that um, in teams, for example. You know the, the the critical thing is is identifying core values that people can um, align on. So we we all think differently. We all have different backgrounds. We all have a different belief system. You know, we whether it's a faith or an upbringing or whatever. But in order for teams to build sustainable success, they must align on certain values. You know, whether it's hard work or integrity or whatever they might be. And that's where you connect people. And that is universal to, you know, whether you're working in a, you know, a manufacturing company, technology company, or with, a, you know, an, an elite uh, military unit somewhere in the, in the Middle East. It doesn't, it doesn't make any difference. Those are the, that's the foundation. Um, the other thing for long-term success is one's own personal health, um, you know, their, their phys- physiological health. Um, if you don't look after yourself, you know, sleep, rest, that really common sense, the, the things that we know to be common sense. If you don't look after yourself, you're, you're going to eventually break down. So there are many common themes, uh, threads that run across um, all areas. Um, and, you know, many of them are, like I said, common sense. But the challenge that most of us face is, how do we apply them then in the real world? How do we make them work mm. for us in the real world? Yeah, cool. Well, let's delve into it. Um, so your your work really looks at both the the performance or effectiveness of teams or organizations plus the performance of an individual? Yes, yeah. So you sort of have the, the experience and, and research behind both of those those areas. So let's, let's talk about, um, and I guess – Probably there's a lot of similarities across um, both, whether it's an individual or an organization. I suppose for me, just what you said, the values, when I align mm-hmm. myself with my values, I know that I'll perform better and I'll be in a, you know, a better state of happiness too. Um, mm-hmm. And I assume that applies with teams and same with long-term success. If I have good personal health, um, I know I perform better as well, exercise, sleep and diet, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's look at the individual first. What are some of the key things that you know about 
how we can prepare and win, I guess, in what we pursue and, and continually improve our performance? Well, the the first, the very first question that you know that I always ask is, what is your definition of a win? Because, um, you know, if, for example, if it's a, a sporting organization and you're at the bottom of the table, a win might be to get you know, two more wins than you had last year. If it's an organization, it might be, it's, my point is it's not always simply increasing profit or, and they have to be realistic. Um, you have to identify the, the win might be to create the best culture within the organization because that will take care of the profit and loss. Um, you know, so what is the definition of, you know, of a win? So that's like uh, looking at the goal. So saying, okay, well, what's yeah, what is the goal that we're trying to achieve here? Not just profits, but what is the ultimate goal? Correct, correct. And the other, the other point, and I, don't, you know, it's, again, it almost seems like I'm working for the Australian Tourist Board. But there's a, f- a fabulous CEO <laughs> with WD40 called Gary Ridge, who um, their their headquarters are in a strip in San Diego, but. He himself, I think he's from Sydney originally, but he, you know, we spoke about this. Um, you can, anybody could take over any organization for 12 months, even for three years and drive the organization very, very hard and improve profit and loss. You can do that. You can come in and drive any organization hard and be disciplined and brutal, but to build sustainable success, that's a completely different thing hmm. to build a culture that will dominate the opponent repeatedly that starts with values even in relationships um you know you align on core values so the people that you you click with that you get on with that you that you have um a fundamental understanding with um or that you're drawn to um it starts with values and um being able to to know what um you know what's important to you as a person and i'm again i'm talking about building something that's sustainable anybody can come in like i said and you know get passionate about something drive it hard but for it to last um you must align on those core values in it and i i don't mean that you don't need to sit down and write them out and have a very long it helps certainly but you know there's some fabulous organizations that um you know have you know or you know groups of people that have uh values that they just suddenly click on well that's what you're you're connecting on the values um on uh you know on that person's identity and uh and, and purpose and when you have mm. that in a group then you can be very very successful yeah that's a really good point um and i think we see that often enough where people go out there and, and really you know because i've done it myself where you go out there and you work your butt off and you push 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 um and you might get some results but then in a couple of years time you either burnt out or you find yourself just saying oh this is not really what i wanted anyway so what am i doing it for um yes you yeah know, it's, or- it's not really aligned with those values Yes, or you're in an organization and, you know, you're doing good work, but there's something wrong. There's just something wrong. You're just not happy or – and it's and it's not um, – sometimes we get drawn to the personalities and that's what we focus on and we think it's somebody's personality. But actually on a deeper level, it's actually the, the, the values of, of the other people that, or the organization that you're working. You're just – your values are not aligned. 
and you get distracted by the superficial things, you know, the, the small irritants perhaps about other people. But if you're connected on values, you ignore them. So take, you know, anybody who's, um, who's married and has a wonderful, happy marriage, there are things that bug you about, about your partner, yeah. but, you, but you ignore them. You actually grow to like them because you're aligned on values and that's why you love the other person. That's why you're in that relationship. Yeah. <laughs> so true. Um, what, uh, with values, how do we come to identify them? Whether it's, again, I guess this is probably a little bit different um, from the individual basis or the collective basis, but how do we identify them? And then how do we bring them in alignment? Well, the, there are two things. I think many organizations inherit, uh, you know, and sometimes it's an ethos or a statement. Um, which, you know, some organizations you learn it by heart, depending on the, or you've got, you know, seven or eight core values and, um, you know, you can sit down and discuss them and identify what they are. But what's more important is to be able to describe what they look like. So, you know, I can say that, um, you know, one of the core values is fun. Well, you know, when I just throw that word out there, uh, that can mean many different things to different people. So it's about discussing what is, you know, if fun is one of the key things I want in my organization, what does that look like? Because there have to be limits to it um, or respect, you know, you can pull values out of the sky. We can all just throw them around and put them down. But, you know, what are they and what does that look like in practice? And what we, you're really asking is, you're asking, what are those behaviors? You know, what does that as an action look like? And when we're all clear on what that looks like, um, then it becomes, um, you know, very easy for people to understand, okay, this is what's expected of me. This is what I can reasonably expect of my, you know, of of my uh, teammates. And when that's clear, um, you know, that's when you start to bring the group together. And one point that, you know, I've learned over the, particularly over the last two years are that in organizations, that have core values established, it's incredibly important to revisit them um, and revisit them honestly, um, frequently, so that they're not, so that when somebody new joins the organization, they just don't learn them off by heart, but not really absorb what they mean. That's a very, very important point because I've seen some organizations who just hand down values. Um, and they tend to drift away from them, but that's because they're not revisited and reinforced. Yeah, such a good point, and I've seen that done on a mega scale. And um, yeah, they just didn't um, revisit them. And when things changed, they fell out of alignment with those values. And if only they had the uh, the foresight to really continually check in, um, perhaps perhaps those external circumstances that were causing a lot of change and uncertainty within the the organisation could have been um, alleviated or even avoided. Yes, and, um, you know, some of, the, some of the, the, the great players I've been around, one thing that was not common to them all, but common to, to many were, for example, Bill Walsh at the great San Francisco 49ers team. Mm. His first talk at this very first meeting uh, on the very first day was always the exact same and established 
not just values, but, you know, operational things, but this is who we are, this is what we do. And again, it's starting from zero at the beginning of the year, every year. And um, that was, you know, and it is a very, very important point that you you restart, you reboot, you bring everybody back to the start um, again and just, you know, reaffirm clearly what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very often overlooked. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So look, looking at, at something... Um like health, let's say health is the value. Um, we identify that. The first step then would be to say, "Well, look, why why is that important? Is that is that sort of where you'd go with that? Why is health important?" And um, understanding that that reason why you value that, and then looking at saying, "Well, how do we define that? What does health look like to me? Um, and what are the behaviours that I identify as being healthy um, to align myself with that value?" Is that sort of a process that we could follow? That's exactly it. Yes. What, you know, what are healthy behaviors? Uh, what are unhealthy behaviors? And now it's clear this is what, you know, what is healthy. And uh, if there are things that we do that are unhealthy, how are we going to uh, change uh, those? So um, there are, for example, um, you, there may be things, for example, that you do, you might drink a you know too much coffee well okay is this something that i can change or is it something that i have to be able to control if it's a case that you um you know you have to give up coffee but you, you're struggling to well can i change it or do i have to control it and then you put strategies in place to yeah. you know to help um you know uh, find those um behaviors that support this value gotcha so yeah, it's a really good one. Making some rules, perhaps around that. Like, I can have one coffee instead of three a day, and um, really sticking yourself to that rule. And then, once you get that behaviour, that's just how you identify whether you're being healthy. And I, I guess the more you check in with your values, the more that you're aware of your values, the more likely it is you're going to avoid the behaviours that are incongruent with with your values. Yes, and one point that's I think something that I've learned as well over the years are that, you know, you might have, let's say you've got a group of 10 people and let's just take, we're on the theme of coffee. Um, but, uh, there are five people there who really want to know why, um, you know, they should reduce their coffee intake and they'll want to know the information, but there's another five that will just take it as face value that, yeah, okay. You've told me that five cups is excessive or whatever it is. Okay. Um, so it's, it's because people say that, you know, or it's commonly or often repeated that, you know, everybody needs to know the why. Well, that's not quite true. Hmm. There are plenty of people who just don't need to know the why, and it's being able to recognize that. But um, most people will want to, okay, well, so now how do I do that? And, you know, like you said, is it, you know, it might be a case of, well, look, let's just start with no, let's start with no coffee after, um, after 4 p.m., because it, you know, it'll help you sleep better, whatever. Some people want to know why is that, and you give them that information. Others just want to know, okay, no coffee after four, that's fine. Yeah, okay. Can- Good point. So, what do you do in a situation? Because I, I think you can, you know, to a certain extent, you can hold yourself accountable to your values once you really identify and become clear with them. Um, I guess you could get an accountability partner or buddy or something like that if you uh, have struggle holding yourself accountable in a team situation. Um, how do you get the collective to really uh, align with the values and create that culture? Hmm. Well, 
for an organization to be truly successful, I, I believe that you want the ownership to be with the, the group. And going back to the WD40 um, example, you know, they, they talk about, they call themselves a tribe, um, which, you know, I wrote about as well in Game Changer, ironically. Um, you know, if you, you can't as a manager or a leader be there all of the time, and by ensuring that the leadership comes from with the, within the group, you encourage them to take ownership of the enforcement of whatever those behaviors are. And I think you have to be, you know, everything is gray. You know, life isn't black and white. So it's taking each decision um, in context. So, for example, if someone, um, uh, you know, uh, behaves in a way that is um, uh, not, in, you know, not an approved behavior, so to speak, well, okay, let's discuss it, let, let the group discuss it and come up with their proposed solution, but understand it in context, because there may be a valid reason for whatever infraction or perceived infraction. So, But giving the group ownership of the decision-making mm-hmm. yeah. um, is very important in terms of delegation. It also encourages leadership from within, and it leaves the, um, you know, the organizational structure. It doesn't play, it's not a top-heavy organization. And having ownership and sharing the you know the wins and losses with the group it's it's very important that as a as a group they do it i suppose there's situations i suppose more commonly where where the group you know wins and if if majority of the group are saying yeah these are really important values and um taking ownership of that then the ones that are sort of rebelling or, or not following suit um will be either pulled in line or or rejected but it, there's, yes. there's probably got to be situations where, um, you know, people are afraid to stand up for the values of, of the organization and maybe pulling people up on it. Like if I take ownership and health is our value and I see people um, not aligning with that, for me to go up to them and say, hey, look, what, you know, how's your behaviors or, you know, whatever, um, there's that fear of being ridiculed or, you know, perhaps losing some respect from your teammates or, you know, colleagues or whatever. Um, by standing up for for the values is is that a common situation and if so how do we deal with that well i think there are two things i think first of all if the values haven't been properly established by the group themselves um so for example if it's a head coach who comes in or a you know a ceo and says okay these are the values yes you're going to see that because um you know it hasn't been come from the floor so to speak so it hasn't been a discussion it hasn't been you know and what you will find are that people who don't feel as though they were involved in that process are not going to adhere to those yeah. values the same way that's the first thing the second point is that um you can afford in a group to have one or two people who will struggle with values you can afford to have that you don't look for it you don't necessarily want it but if you've got a very strong culture they will be drawn in by the the culture of the organization because it will be um, unacceptable or it will be deemed uh, unusual for them to behave in a way that doesn't align with the cultures. In other words, it will stand out. So, you know, uh, it might be a dress code thing. Well, if this person doesn't adhere to the dress code, they're going to stand out. If it's only one person um, and they'll start to notice that, um, they'll either comply 
or somebody will say something or more than one person will say something um, to them. Um, but you, you, there's a limit to the number of people that you can have. And very often, you, again, you're not trying to – you have to be careful that you don't suppress innovation and creativity. And again, that's why you view it in context. But you um, to have those core values, um, you, you need to have them established and, and allow ownership within the group. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Cool stuff. So once we um, become aligned with the values, know the values, start behaving um, accordingly, what other things are we looking for, again, to increase our performance and, and overall success or uh, performance? I think, you know, when you've identified what, what the win is and, um, you know, you're, you're focused on that, hmm. I think, um, really it, it, that's about establishing effectiveness, you know, are we being effective? And then the next question then is in terms of efficiency, are we, uh, being efficient in terms of reaching our goals? Because, um, what you, you obviously need to, um, be effective in other words, affect the scoreboard or whatever it might be. But then it's a case of saying, okay, well, are we using our time in the best possible way? And, that's where you look at the things that you're doing and you go, okay, is this useful? Is it useless or is it interesting? And you want to get rid of the useless stuff, the stuff that's not contributing, which, we, you know, when we go to work or our life, there are lots of things we do are useless. You want to limit those. And then there are other things that are just interesting that help, you know, inspire us, that help entertain us, that, you know, it might be, you know, longer coffee breaks, whatever. They may be they may not be essentially useful, but they may be interesting and may be contributing still to the success of the organization indirectly. Hmm. Uh, and th- that's important to just to be aware of those things. Yeah, so no real hard and fast rule there. Um, which well, is... the, yeah, the danger, the danger is, of course, if you're, you know, if you're just too brutally disciplined um, about... Th- the, one of the important things, I think, about winning is we don't know what all of the contributing factors are in anything. If we did, you know, rugby teams, it, footy teams would, you know, it'd be PlayStation. We'd have a magic formula. We don't know what, they're, what they all are. Some of them are, it, there's gray areas. So you have to be very, very careful when you say, do ne- never do this. You know what I mean? There's, there's a little bit of gray. There are key, there are KPIs, there are key performance indicators that we know to affect it. But then there are some other things that, that indirectly contribute that we just have to be a little bit um wary of like one example um with one team that i worked with um we the the night before a game uh all of the players you know traditionally had ice cream when i came in i was young um you know the the menu was put in front of me for the first game and i said okay well you don't need ice cream the night before the game the night before the game there was almost a mutiny i had to go and get ice cream from from the hotel for the team because this is what they did this is what they were used to now there were there was no um poor food choices throughout the week so this one night this one small thing that all the players enjoyed while it may not have been the ideal food was was helped them they, they fell asleep at night they felt good it was a good thing for them it might not have been in, in the top 10 nutritionally um you know dense foods or, or uh, preferred foods but it actually indir- indirectly contributed to the players being happy content and performing well the next day so it's again 
Just yeah. being careful about the absolutes is very important. Yeah, that's a good point. So tell us, looking at um, some of the organizations you've worked for over the years and sites that you've seen, what is maybe one or two things that um, most of us probably don't see as far as you know the most effective teams you've seen um, and the, the reason behind that? Um, I've always boiled it down to three things, um, hard work, um, humility, and honesty. And hard work, everybody works hard, but the key point about hard work is that when the work is hard, as in intense, it's very, very intense. It's competition um, pace. But that doesn't mean that they do it all the time. And I've had these conversations with, you know, some elite units, military units, and they, you know, they, you know, they laugh at, you know, the interpretation of what they do that, you know, there's no easy day and that, you know, it's always, it's from 5am to nine at night, flat out. It's not, but when the work is being done, that is very intense work. So it's, in, in other words, the practice is at competition pace. So when when competition comes, they're prepared for it. And it's the same in work. Um, when you're, preparing a presentation or you're preparing a proposal you know you the preparation of that is to the highest standard possible um, before you present so that when you go forward to the actual pitch that you're extremely well prepared and you're prepared for all eventualities so that's what i mean by hard work yeah that's uh, really interesting not, yeah it's not that you work hard all the time but it's that the hard work portion is very very detailed hmm. um the second one then humility is critical because that avoids complacency, um, and that is the that has destroyed more organisations and teams than uh, than anything else. Than anything else, it's like potential. It's the the great thing that you you never ever reach. But having that humility um, within the organisation or, or uh, as yourself in terms of okay, you know, I'm doing a really good job here, but it's not perfect, and and keeping your feet on the ground is is very, very important. And the final one is honesty. And it's related again to humility in the sense that let's look at honestly at our product and it goes back to what you spoke about, about Japan and Kaizen and constant improvement where um, let's be critical, constant, not um, to the detriment of our self-esteem, but let's be brutally honest about how good we are, but also where our weaknesses are. And that self-awareness is important for personal development as well. So that we're, you know, we're honest about what our strengths are, but we're equally aware of what our limitations are and how we can mitigate against those and how we can continue to improve. So hard work, um, humility, and uh, and honesty are the three themes that I've seen um, across all, um, you know, all of the most successful organisations. And notice, I don't consider intelligence as one of those key things because i i think there are many many organizations that have extremely intelligent people but if they don't have those other three they're they're you know very very bright people but who just fail to actually be successful because of those three things yeah they're really good yeah, so tell us about your journey recently you've had a bit of a uh, a awakening i suppose uh, a bit of burnout <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, I was working at the university of Michigan and, um, I had been, I'd been working for almost 
two and a half years, I, I probably, I was looking after, um, probably I, I, my job originally was as director of performance over strength and conditioning, nutrition, sports science, and, uh, our director of operations left. So I took on that role, which was responsible for basically all the, the operation stuff. It was probably a task too, uh, you know, too much. Um, I, you know, felt an obligation or a duty to, to do both those jobs to the best of my ability. I was probably working, you know, it's a seven day a week job. Um, and, um, I'd taken, I think eight days off vacation in two years. And, um, I, uh, came back, I I went back home to see my parents. I hadn't seen them for, for two years. And, uh, when I came back, uh, one of my jobs was advertised online. Um, which was a shock to me. I went to try and find an answer. I couldn't. And then I, I got a text from the athletic director's assistant to, hey, listen, we want to move your office. Can you just clear your office and we'll find you a new office in a few days? Um, uh, so I moved my stuff back to my apartment, just waiting. And weeks went by. And for some reason, I was never let, I never, um, never got any further communication. And wow. I thought, okay, <laughs> so something's, something's going to happen here. You know, somebody's going to get in touch. But I, um, I made the mistake of not, um, realizing, I, I just thought this is, well, this is awkward. This is difficult, but I'll get over it. Um, I was looking after, you know, my personal life I was looking after somebody else as well, just trying to help them through something. And I didn't want to share with them how difficult it was for me. And it just got to a stage where with the amount of pressure and stress that I was under, even though ironically, I wasn't working. It was the fact that work had been taken away from me. Um, I just got to a stage where I couldn't sleep. And I, you know, I made the mistake of drinking to fall asleep. I drove the next morning and crashed and got a DUI. And it was um, a huge wake up call for me. And um, it was, it was, a, it was, I, I, I mean this phrase in the best possible way, but it was a great lesson for me that I had found uh, a limit to how much stress I could, you know, I could manage on my own. Mm. And for the first, for the first time, um, you know, I'd overextended myself, Mm. you know, because we all, everybody has to work hard. We we know that, but, um, I had gone too far. And I remember asking myself, you know, numerous times is, um, you know, am I being soft here because I'm not able to handle all of this? Or, um, is it that, uh, this is for real? And I just, I just thought, no, tough this out. You'll be fine. You'll get through it. But I, I didn't, I wasn't able to handle it on my own. And, um, it was a great lesson. And it's one that I've shared with, um, you know, a number of military units and, and, uh, and actually, you know, CEOs and companies. It's, and it's very, very, it's interesting after it happened, I, the number of phone calls I got from people in the industry, in the corporate world, and in the military who said to me, Fergus, um, I went through the exact same thing, only, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't have an accident or I didn't get caught or in a different way. I'm going, mm. I'm, yeah, I'm struggling with the very same things. Um, and I slowly realized this is somewhat of an epidemic for, you know, type A personalities or very driven people, um, or, you know, overachievers that, and it's something that, um, you know, I was able to, um, you know, push through right up until, till now. So 
you know, I guess I'm fortunate. I would have liked to have learned the lesson in a different way, um, in a far less uh, embarrassing way. But, um, you know, you, you have to learn from these lessons. Otherwise, you're just, um, you know, being a victim and, um, uh, and ignoring them. Yeah, mate. It's, um, it's a really cool story. Um, <laughs> that's, that's seriously, like it is. It's a really cool story. And it's, it's, um, you're very open about it too, which I, I thank you for sharing. Um, and a really good reminder for us to, you know, understand that when things are stressful or becomes that point, it's, it's, we still have to take care of ourselves and sometimes we can't do it alone. So I think, you know, raising your hand and asking for help is, is a good thing. Well, you know, I've, uh, like I said, I presented to, I presented to one group, um, you know, about the, the irony was that much of my career was in looking for the, the clues, signs and symptoms within elite performers um, and helping spot them in those people and helping them through it. And I've always, because of that, been someone who's been very aware of the difficulties and understanding of the difficulties of others. And I was doing that, but I didn't notice it in myself. And that was what shocked me. And that's what, you know, I've been able to help, you know, so many people with senses. Okay, this is what you need to look for in yourself mm. or you need to... Uh, have other people who can help you recognize them in you and um, you know there's there've been some you know I've been able to help some uh, have had a, a great impact with some people um, who you know it's been very rewarding for me yeah and I think I think many people can relate I certainly can to that you know it's it's sometimes easier to um, look out and help others and, and see um, the, the the faults or whatever it might be that you can pick up on, and it's easier than looking in and and seeing your own issues, and and perhaps you become a bit negligent to do that. But uh, I think that's that's critical, and certainly that's certainly where I've caught myself out sometimes. Going, hang on, what am I actually? How am I leading this by example? How am I doing and um, doing my part to you know really align myself with my values um, rather than always yes. looking externally? Yep. Yeah, and I think. You know, if, for example, in, in my case and in some, uh, like I say, with, with some groups, their job is to protect other people. So you're always prepared to sacrifice, you know, yourself or your own health for periods of time to look after others and to look after um, the things that are important to them. But um, if you overextend, you, you know, you, you pay the, you, you pay an ultimate price. And it's, it's embarrassing, it's ironic, but I used to say to people time and time again, you know, when you get on an airplane and they give the safety announcement, they always say, in the event of emergency, our masks will, will drop, you know, put your own uh, mask on first before you do, before you put it on that of children or people with you. I didn't put, I didn't, I was putting masks on everybody else and not, you know, not looking after myself. Um, I was, uh, and again, it's it's only a lesson if you learn from it, and uh, it's been it's been a great lesson for me. Yeah, no, mate, awesome stuff. Look, I've got some quick round questions that I want to run through with you before we wrap this up. Uh, I'm not sure if I sent these to you prior, but um, they're they're pretty straightforward. And the first question is: Do you have any routines or rituals that you believe contribute to your success? Um, I think uh, I think the greatest. It's not really a, a ritual or a routine, but I think um, every you know I've made so many mistakes. Like I mean, but I'm always I'm, I'm always reevaluating. 
um, what I could have done better. I think it's a, it's just a habit. I wouldn't necessarily call it a, a ritual, um, but just constantly thinking back and going, okay, how could I have done that better? Yeah, it's a good one. What do you define as success? Happiness. Well, contentment. Um, I think um, being content, uh, which is a little bit different from happiness in that I think some people you know, strive and chase pleasure and, um, you know, sudden bursts of pleasure as opposed to being content. That to me is, is what success is. That's my win. Yeah. There's, there's sort of two levels of happiness or yeah. Contentment. Yes, yeah. And what advice would you give your 20 year old self? Don't change anything. You know, I don't get me wrong. Uh, I, would did not would not have wanted to get a DUI and wouldn't have wanted any of that. But um, I am who I am because of the the mistakes I've made and the wonderful people who I've learned from and who've helped me. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't change I wouldn't change anything. Do you have a tool, skill, or resource that you would use regularly to improve your overall overall productivity? I always carry a little black notebook in my right hip pocket and a steel pen, a metal pen. Um, I it, I could be, I could be at a at a wedding or at a funeral, and I would always have a notebook. It doesn't matter where I will be, hmm. um, and I would just see something, write it down, uh, think of something. Um, it's something. It's just a habit I, I I've always had, um, and you know, it's yeah, it's always worked worked for me. Yeah, I've just started trying to get into that habit, actually. It's funny you say that, but that's a good one. Yeah. What, if you were to be served your last meal, what would you request? Oh. Uh, (laughs) Just a a fillet, a fillet steak. Uh, Just a, I don't think there's anything nicer than a, a, a fillet, a nice fillet steak. And what activity gives you the greatest sense of joy? Reading, I just, I love, uh, I'm happy in my own company. I just love reading something that's challenging and different. Like I rarely read anything to do with sport anymore. Very rarely. Um, I, you know, at the minute I'm writing a, writing another book, wow. uh, uh, based on, you know, it's, it's actually, <laughs> uh, based on winning for, for high achievers, winning in life. And, um, at the minute, you know, I'm reading, uh, you know, Plato, uh, Socrates, you know, but I very rarely read anything to do with sport anymore. That's cool. And so on that note, what one book would you pass down to your children or future generations? Um, at the minute, probably 59 lessons, um, just because, and, and I don't mean that in an arrogant way, but it's just it's just a collection of stories. It's a, the reason I wrote it, and this is not a sales pitch at all, but I wrote it for I wrote it for two reasons. One was that it it hit me like I mean two years ago, there were one or two people passed away, um, you know, or that that left us that I never got the opportunity to say thank you to people who impacted my life who helped me, and I wanted to I wanted to take a, take the time to write. The, write the small stories that I'd learned or the lessons I'd learned from these people before, you know, 
it got too late and and so it's a collection of stories from so many people um but there were a few who you know who left us too early and um i i wanted to do that and the and the other reason was because i wanted to pass on those lessons to the next generation of you know sports scientists or young coaches coming coming through but um the, the one book that i think well, two other books that I think are invaluable are one is called A Letter to Garcia, which is probably the shortest read that you will ever read. Um, uh, it's uh, it's only a few pages. And the other one is uh, The Four Agreements. Um, so those would be the, the two books that uh, I think are challenging for people to read. Yeah, nice. I'll stick them in the show notes, guys. So check it out, thehiddenwire.com. This is episode 722, I believe. Um, so yeah, have a look at those books and I'll stick your other book in there as well, mate. So, um, the audience can have a look at that game changer. Thank you. Do you have a quote or text or message that you would text or tweet to everyone? Um, little moments, big memories. Little moments, big memories. Big memories. You can have small moments in life that uh, leave you with long-lasting, big memories. And what do you believe we all have a a hidden why or purpose? Yes, absolutely. And I think it's important. I think that the sooner that you identify who you are as a person, as opposed to your job, your whatever, who you are, your identity. And you can establish what your purpose is in life, the easier it will be to find contentment. And what does living life with passion and purpose mean to you? Helping good people do great things. That was my, my father was a teacher, my mother was um, a housewife, and, um, you know, even starting coaching, um, it's always been about helping good people um do you know good things or great things and uh Hmm. and just really about helping people yeah cool and so looking at the underlying motivation behind everything you do if you could go as deep as possible to the deep underlying motivation what would that be helping people yeah Uh, helping people that's to, to me that's um uh i think that you know i um like i said in the in the middle of this other book but I think in life, I think there are three types of people. There are um, sheep, wolves, and sheepdogs. And uh, I think, you know, sheep are like young children or elderly people within society who, you know, who need support. I think there are wolves. I think there are narcissists, sociopaths who will take advantage of of sheep. And then I think there are people who um, are sheepdogs by nature who's, job is to protect those who um, need support from time to time um, from wolves and uh, I, I think that's that's the the motivation or the purpose I think behind a lot of what I do beautiful mate look it's been a fantastic conversation with you today Fergus and uh, appreciate you coming on the show Lee thank you very much sir thank you shared well guys check it all out thehiddenwire.com episode 722 you can find the links to Fergus as well. He's got a website, fergusconnolly.com. So I'll stink that in the show notes as well as the book. So support him there. Reach out to him if you have any questions and uh, check out a bit of his work. Thanks, Fergus, once again. And guys out there listening, thank you for listening. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. 
thanks guys for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon